Welcome to our 24th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum, produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land in which we gather, the Wadjuk people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Whether you've been in business for years or are just starting out, we all have moments when we come up with an idea that might just have legs. Taking that idea from that point to determining firstly whether it has any traction and then can it actually create some value is enough for most of us just to leave our ideas there. And even if we do take that next step further, finding a way to navigate through the complexities of the commercialisation process is no mean feat. Our region here in Fremantle has a long history and strong positive conditions for entrepreneurship. However, understanding the process of commercialisation and scaling businesses for growth can be a significant challenge. We have an amazing panel today with an extraordinary depth of leadership in the success and pitfalls and innovation pathways across businesses large and small. And I'm really looking forward today to exploring all sorts of things around some of the pitfalls, the challenges and how we bring some of those ideas to reality. And first on our panel today is the amazing Cheryl Frame, Director of Edict International Consulting PTY LTD. Cheryl walks the talk of commercialisation and her many, many successes testify. In fact, I think we could spend all day on the panel just talking about your personal examples, Cheryl. Since 2012, Cheryl has worked as a commercialisation advisor to Accelerating Commercialisation, a federal government initiative, which assists innovative new businesses across a broad range of disciplines in their transition from idea to commercial venture. She's intimately qualified to do so, having started a number of technology-based businesses, all in the medical sector, each of which has resulted in a successful exit. Cheryl, you began your career studying physiotherapy before moving into IT, quite a diverse jump there. And this has led to your particular interest in the healthcare, biomed and technology sectors. Cheryl is committed and passionately to the innovation principle that tomorrow starts today and has been a vocal and active advocate for the imperative to provide the best advice and assistance possible to enable innovation and business startup success. Cheryl, you're also vigorously committed to the representation of women in enterprise and government, and you've served as a founding director of Startup WA and was recently appointed to the board of UWA's Commercialisation Studies Centre. An incredible list of achievements there and a number of awards under your belt as well. Cheryl, as someone who has been involved in the sector for a long time, and as we noted, started a number of different ventures yourself, you've developed and commercialised so many ideas and provided advice to many, many more. I thought I'd start on the panel this morning with a really broad question. I'd love to know what your advice would be and what you would give someone who has an idea and where should they even begin to make that reality? Thanks, Denisha, and thanks for that lovely introduction. I think your members of the chamber start from a distinct point of advantage because they're all in business and probably the ideas they have have been born out of a business problem. The thing is, with an idea, it only becomes a commercial reality if people are prepared to pay money for it. And so ascertaining whether you have a client base, what the size of the client base might be and what the pool is something one needs to do very early on. But I know we have some patent lawyers here who can speak in more depth about it. People are often very scared of talking about their idea before they've had any protection put around it. I'll leave that for Scott to talk about later on. 
Absolutely, and I think you're so right. That very starting point, and I think you mentioned the word problem, is yes. really, really important. Of What problem am I actually going to solve with this idea? Because unless someone identifies a problem, they're not going to put money down to actually yeah. want to pay for it. The days of innovating for innovation's sake are long gone. Mm. You know, We need to see what keeps customers awake at night. What is the actual problem they're solving? That's fantastic and a great introduction. And as you mentioned, Scott, uh, immediately to your left, is Principal and Head of Engineering and Technology Group, Rays. Um, Scott Rays, one of the largest independent intellectual property specialist firms in Australia, and there you head up the Engineering and Technology Group specialising in mechanical and electronic technologies. You've spent 20 years working as a patent trademark attorney and are an expert in the field, um, helping to grow, protect and defend your clients' intellectual property assets both locally and globally. And I know, as Cheryl mentioned, that's uh, one of the big fears in this whole area of commercialising ideas is how we actually protect them before we even start. Um, you have extensive experience in drafting and prosecuting patent applications through to grant access from a range of different industries, mining, oil, gas, medical, technology, rolling stock, rail and defence. Prior to entering the IP world, you had direct experience, I guess, being employed as a mechanical engineer in a variety of different roles. And I imagine that experience of being there and being part of industry helps, as Cheryl was saying, kind of understand what the problem is in order to solve it. Um, once an idea has legs, what lengths do you think one should go to protect that idea? And what are the pitfalls around protecting either a product or an innovative process? Thank you, Dinesh, and, th and thank you for this opportunity to, to um, speak to your audience. Um, look, I, I, I think um, that there's a raft of different rights um, available to to um, to people, and not all of them suit the individual, and not all of them suit the particular innovation or the or what they're trying to do. So, so I think um, to have a clear idea first of what is available. Um, and then being able to 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 engage with those processes, it's um, I think it's important that you get that advice right from from the get go, um, and to follow some a strategy. Mm, absolutely, and as someone personally that has been sued over the fact that another individual thought they owned the concept of cheese and the concept of a festival. Um, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to distinguish what is IP, is it a brand, is it the process? Can you just give us a really brief overview of just some of the key things? When does an idea become something that can actually be protected? Okay, so so from a, a product point of view, which is often the way most people will look at it, and it's the easier way to understand, I think, um, is you don't have to have engaged, you don't have to have a prototype, you don't have to have um, a, a product that is, is physical in your hand. Um, it can be a concept, but the concept needs to be sufficiently developed that uh, a, another person coming along and, and reading about your, your product doesn't have to imply inventive thinking. Okay, so if it's if it's already there, it's developed um, in your head. It that might be enough, or you might have developed enough to be able to to wrap some protection around, mm. and then be in a position to be a bit freer to go into the market and, and start talking. And I'm going to fill next on our panel. I think we'll be, have some great insight into to some of the, the challenges of, of when you actually move to that step from idea into making it something a little bit more um, structured. But just before we do, um, you mentioned prototypes and products, but, you know, there is obviously ideas can be services and, and can be processes as well. Can you just kind of give a little bit of background on the difference between those? Yep, so absolutely. There's... Um, 
product. We all know that. That's a physical thing. But you might have developed a, a new um, a new medical treatment. You may have developed um, a new method of um, seeding a farm. Um, those type of methods, if, if they're an improvement on what's gone before, them themselves and, and processes, a, a new way of um, processing, um, mineral processing for gold, um, all those type of aspects um, can be protected under, under the patent system. And I'd love to have a chat to Cheryl about some of those examples too, about you know how you take those steps through when we come back in on the panel in a moment. Thank you for that great introduction, Scott. Next on our panel is um, familiar face to, to many Fremantle businesses and a long-standing member of the Fremantle Chamber, Philip Kemp, Chief Executive of Business Foundations Incorporated. Uh, Phil has qualifications in agricultural science, small business facilitation and company management and is recognised as an industry expert in the field of small business development. He has published widely on small business enterprises and micro enterprise development issues with particular reference to international best practice in business incubation operations and has conducted international research and published comparative international studies on the provision of small business enterprise and micro enterprise business advisory and support services. He holds key positions on a number of national boards and associations, including Chairperson of Business Innovation and Incubation Australia and is a member of the Enterprise Connect Manufacturing Advisory Board. Phil, you see all sorts of businesses every day. You see big ones grow, fail, start again, micro ones, you know, finding their feet. We're talking about some really, I guess, concepts around ideas in your experience and what you've seen, what do you think is the most important question a business owner has to ask themselves when they begin on a journey for commercialising a product or service? Thanks, thanks, Denisha. Um, and isn't it great to be in the Frio Chamber this morning <laughs> um, on the banks of the Durbel Yerrigan? Um, love being in my own town and talking about business. Um, Even on you. a dark, rainy, dark, stormy rainy day. day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, so, um, look, thanks for the introduction. Um, how, how would I answer that question? It, just picking up on what Cheryl Cheryl was saying, which I and you know absolutely support and agree with, um, you know, it, it's that I it's that thing where people think they've had the idea for the very first time, you, you know, and and nobody's thought of this, you know, and I'm <laughs> I'm going to make a million dollars from this idea, and you, you know, and 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 I'll, and I'll be a bit flippant, but you know, uh, sparkly pink llamas you know, may not be exactly what the customers want, you know, but just because you've done a great Google search and nobody's selling, you know, silvery or, you know, pink llamas, sparkly pink llamas, there's my, that's my, you know, that's my chance, you know, because nobody's thought of this. And of course, that's not true, mm -hmm. you know. So my advice would be, you know, get, get some advice, get some perspective. Google searching is great. Um, talking to friends and family, they'll only support you, which is great. Um, but that may not be the actual problem that the market has that your business is trying, you know, that, that there is no market for your pink, silvery, you know, sparkly llamas, you know. Um, this year it's actually, you know, shiny whales. Mm. Um, so so um, it's getting proper advice and, and, and understanding the market. I think it's a really good point. And I, I think too that the timing of all of these things often is, you know, you can have a great idea at a moment in time, but that is a moment in time and, and the world can shift by the time you actually get around to commercialising it and suddenly that idea isn't what you thought it might be and having 
always being able to ask that question of what problem am I solving? And if that problem's gone away, we need to do something else and we can't just keep going down a path. I think it's absolutely really, really good advice, Phil. Um, Helen Barrett, last on our panel to introduce, is a commercial lawyer from Free Show Lawyers. Um, you've recently joined the commercial law and dispute resolution team at the local um, Chamber Members Free Show Lawyers, and your diverse experience in the legal services field includes commercial um, and disputes with construction, maritime, oil and gas, and startups. You've also had some experience in family law, liquor licensing, and criminal law. So quite a diverse background, Helen. Um, you're also pleased to be back in Fremantle and practising in your hometown um, and are enthusiastic about helping those in business determine the best legal structures for their businesses and reviewing and negotiating commercial contracts. Um, and particularly, I guess, resolving disputes. And, and, you know, we've highlighted before, sometimes this whole idea world can be quite a controversial world um, when you're first entering it. And I guess sometimes there's someone with an idea, there's someone with the money, there's sometimes unbalance in the relationships of how things come together. From a legal and a contract perspective and even a business structure perspective, what are some of the things that you would almost wish you could give that advice to people before they start on the journey <laughs> rather than when they're halfway down it? Well, first of all, thanks so much for inviting us down here this morning um, to go through these ideas. Um, I would leap straight to once you've got your idea and you've worked out how to protect your idea, you want to think about how to protect your interests by having the right business structure for you, mm -hmm. for how your business is operating at that moment. You know, it could be you're just going to be a sole trader, just you by yourself. It's really easy to set up. Uh, it's also a bit risky, but it's going to be fairly straightforward. And there's lots of different forms after that. Do you want to go into a partnership with one or more other people? Uh, really easy to do. Again, quite flexible. Disadvantage being you've got unlimited liability there. So perhaps a joint venture where you can have a more formal sort of partnership arrangement and you can have separate profits and several liability and some good tax advantages or there's the company, which is the most secure option that's going to protect you behind the corporate veil. You know, if there's, if there's disputes, it's against the company, not you as a person with you and your family's assets on the line. So there's all of these different options that you'd need to think about. And you'd want to talk to an accountant as well. A lawyer is going to tell you how to protect your interests, but an accountant's going to talk to you about tax advantages. And you need to weigh up that advice to find what's best for you right now, thinking that in the future you might want to change that, but what's best right now? And once you've got that, get it in writing. That's that's the one big bit of advice I would go with is it's a lot of people these days are still very happy to do business on a handshake, but I think you're missing an opportunity to future-proof your business. You want to sit down together and work out what you want to agree to, how are you going to make decisions, how are you going to solve disputes? Um, how are you going to raise capital? What happens when one of you wants to leave? What happens when someone else wants to join the business? You know, all of this is something that when you're nutting out an agreement together, you can really be clear that you're all on the same page and you all know what's going to happen in the future and you give yourselves room to move as things develop and change. And I guess that's a big costly part of that initial thinking, isn't it? Investing in all of that. And I know, Cheryl, you've got some fantastic examples of even where 
you go down that line and you've invested all of that money in that structure where things can still go awry and, and future-proofing all of those is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm so pleased you mentioned that they need to get accounting advice as well as legal advice. I cannot tell you how often we've come across people who are applying for grants and just could have saved so much money on their journey had they had the right structure at the beginning. Mm. Very often people will form a partnership or just trade as a sole trader or something that, like that because it's cheaper at the start of their journey. However, if you're going to claim the R&D tax incentive, which is the best scheme in Australia for clawing back some of the money you spend at that early stage, you have to be a proprietary limited company registered for GST. So if you're going to look for external sources of funding, it's very important that you go to an accountant who understands that mm. and who can help you. There is another qualification, and that's to be an ESSEC company, early stage investment company. If you've been trading for less than three years, if it's a novel product that you're taking to the market, you qualify for ESSEC status. And that means when you go to raise capital, there's a distinct incentive for people who are investing in your company to invest with you rather than with a company that does not have ESSEC status. Okay. It gives them a great tax relief. So they're putting less money and get a better advantage. It's really important, isn't it? And Phil, I guess you would see that a lot in terms of some of the yeah, structures that businesses create. Just wanted to add to that: the lack of capital at startup. Mm. Uh, you know, people just un underestimate, and so they try to do it on the cheap. Yeah, they don't get yeah. the right advice. They don't get the accounting advice. They don't set up their structure right. Speak to a lawyer. Get the right um, company structure. And and it's this myth around you know kind of you can bootstrap and riff it at the early stage and, you know, you can go through an accelerator program and get it all done in, you know, 90 days or something, um, uh, you know, uh, while you're working, you full -time know. Full-time is something else. Full-time <laughs> is something else. And, and people just, you know, you've got to have savings. You've got to have money in the bank. You've got to spend money in the right places. Um, it's, yeah, it, people underestimate the amount of capital to start start things up, let alone the money you need to, to commercialise. I'm just talking the, the, the very, very mm. beginning. It's such an important point and I think I read a quote years and years ago where it just said you've got to spend money to make money and you absolutely do and there's nothing worse than being in a business where you actually then have the potential to start to grow but you've got no capital or no nowhere to move. Um, Cheryl, you had something to add I think around just funding. Is there funding available to help with there that? There is funding available. In fact, I was saying earlier when I was chatting to Scott before we started that since we've well, come we out of the, you in the, the building. COVID, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Since we came out of the COVID lockdown, money is flowing more freely than it was prior to that. There's more of an appetite for investment, and we're definitely seeing that people are able to raise money. I'm involved with two companies personally at the moment, and we're in the midst of raising, and that's going quite well. Um, the thing I've lost what I was going to say. Just with funding and... and funding yeah. is available. Um, I was going to suggest that if people are interested in early-stage investment company status or in the R&D tax incentive that they visit the federal government website, www.business.gov.au. It's a hideous website, but there is a search button in the top right-hand corner. If you just put in ESSEC or you put in R&D tax incentive, you'll find all the information that you need about that. The other thing I was going to say about raising capital is it's fine to go out and raise capital and very often you'll get investors who will understand the technology you're talking about, understand the idea and get quite excited. But when they start to do a due diligence, the deal often falls over 
And that's very often attributed to the fact that they have the wrong company structure for investment. They don't have shareholding agreements in place. There is something in the health of that company that will prevent investment. Mm -hmm. So get that advice early on, and it's never as cheap to do as now at the beginning. I think it's a really, really important point. And one of the other things I thought, Scott, I might just um, cover off a bit of background with you as well is I imagine there's a lot of sort of possession around an idea and, and part of probably why people start up as a sole trader is this is mine, I don't want anyone else to kind of be part of it. And I guess ideas come up in organisations potentially from employees, they can come from individuals. Where Who owns the idea? And if you are getting funding from capital people coming in, where does it sit in terms of who actually owns it and where we go from there? Yeah, OK. So ownership... Um People do come unstuck with ownership. Um, it needs to be clear right from the beginning. Um, if you're entering in an agreement with someone else who has IP, make sure that they have ownership to that IP and it's ownership and entitlement, okay? So, um, for instance, if you had a, um, a piece of software that was um, some code was written and you had, a, had it done in India, for instance, um, the copyright, you don't own the copyright. So you have to have that those type of um, rights assigned to you. So ownership can be quite messy, mm. um, particularly where you, you're outsourcing different parts of, of the development. Rule of thumb in Australia, most um, uh, large companies, most companies now within their employment contracts will have an IP clause which says anything you develop in the course of, of your duties that um, you know, the IP belongs to the, to the company. Um, sometimes that can be challenged because that person might be um, employed for it as a as a cleaner, for instance. Mm. So not the duty isn't to invent. So it can become murky. Um, research. So if you design uh, the world's best mop whilst working for another organisation, that become is where it kind of becomes a little bit. Well, yeah, if, it, if, it, if it's not a cleaning company. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> so you, you're cleaning you know, wood side chambers yeah. and you suddenly find something so, yeah. different. And, yeah. and, and there's, there's, uh, you know, there's steps you can take to try and, you know, to ensure before you spend a lot of money on developing that you do have ownership from that, mm. that company. And, and, and a lot of that is a discussion um, with, with management. So, yeah, look, it is varied. Um, it, generally in Australia, like I said, most employment uh, contracts will have IP belongs to the to the company. And what about in an investment situation where someone's bringing an idea into a PTYT LTD company and then someone else is funding that? How does that work? Okay, so, so those those type of um, people will, will usually, if it's in the company um, and the company owns the IP and if they're investing into that, that company, it does depend on the level of sophistication of the investor. Mm. Right? And, I, and I just wanted to add something that Cheryl mentioned is if you, you know, because Investors do come from a, a, a vast pot of different personalities um, and demographics. The investor you want is someone who's going to help you along the journey, not someone who's going to put money in and then within six months says, well, where's my return? Because it's, it is a long journey. Um, so in terms of uh, if an investor comes in, then they would usually want to have ownership within that company. And if the company owns that IP, then there is... Through through that shareholding, 
Um, and Cheryl, I'd love to just on that sort of journey, I guess, from being an employee and one of the stories I've heard you share was even your own story about identifying a problem and then working through. Could you maybe just talk through one of your examples of, of how you've gone on that journey from you coming up with an idea, perhaps working for someone else, and then how you took that through? Sure, I'll perhaps share an idea of one of the businesses that I was involved in when I first came to Australia. I met a gentleman who had the, the rights, he had a patent that covered the rights to vend from a machine product that was restricted. In other words, you needed some form of identification to get the product out of the machine. He was very lucky because it was a particularly wide patent, and the wider the patent is, the more coverage you have. You know, I laugh over the years, I've seen so many applications for funding come through where they say, I've got a new type of walling and I've got a patent on it. And you say, well, what is the walling? And it's two pieces of material with some extruded foam between it. And you've seen hundreds of those. And the patent actually covers the clip that clips the panels together. It has nothing to do with that. But going back to my story, I met this gentleman. And his big idea was that he wanted to build an alcohol vending machine where you had to have some identification to prove you were of age to buy alcohol. He happened to have met me on a Tuesday when I'd just come back for, from our first trip down south to Margaret River and the surrounding areas. And I realised that many of those towns had no pharmacies and that if people were sick, they were having to send their script to the nearest hospital. The medicines came back a few days later by bus and went to the depot, which was the local butcher or baker. And they, if they were sick, that delay was quite critical. So our looked at this and said, well, why don't we develop a machine that will do for pharmacy what ATMs did for banking? Why don't we develop a machine where you have to put a prescription in to get the right medication out of it? And he thought about it for a day and he phoned me, he said, you're absolutely right, will you come on board? And so the company owned the RP, I went on board and had an agreement of what my relationship with the company was, and we developed this machine. There were lots of challenges on the journey, but that's a story for another time. We successfully built this machine. Now, because I was new to Australia, I didn't know much about pharmacy, I just knew there was a need. I decided to build a team of advisors and, in fact, a formal advisory board that comprised of representatives from every aspect of the industry. So the Medicines Control Council, the Poisons Control Council, the Pharmaceutical board, uh, Benefits Association. I had two pharmacists on the advisory panel and the Professor of Pharmacy from Curtin University. And they were guiding me with everything that this machine had to do. It had to have five printers in it. It had a double-sided scanner in it. You could go up, and we deliberately designed it to look exactly like an ATM, so people would feel comfortable using it. The idea was you'd go up, press the button, and you'd be connected with a duty pharmacist who could be anywhere. They could be working from a home office, they could be in the pharmacy around the corner, they could be in Sydney. They would be able to look at you, scan in your script, say, well, Cheryl, you've got a prescription for Moxel, we only have the generic equivalent, would you be happy if we dispensed amoxicillin? And they would go through their normal dispensing process on their normal dispensing software on their machine, and they would label the box, take payment through this ATM type machine, and give you your amoxicillin at the point of contact. Great concept, lots and lots of challenges in building that machine, as you can imagine, but it all worked perfectly, and we had all the pharmaceutical companies lining up to buy the machine. We actually failed to commercialise in Australia 
because there was one little law that nobody had highlighted to me and that I was completely unaware of. And that was, in each state, there's a law that governs how many pharmacies a pharmacist can own. And they couldn't work out whether to classify my machines as a pharmacy or as a cupboard. And after three years of lobbying with Canberra and many changes of government, we failed to get agreement on how to classify this. And it was just getting too hard. So we gave up trying to commercialise it here to the detriment of everybody in Australia because it would have really provided a very valuable service. And we have managed to commercialise in Europe. But we had patents that were very wide. And why I tell that particular story is that the founder actually stands to make a lot of money out of his patent because somebody has infringed his patent in Canada. And I'm sure there are others that we don't even know about that have infringed such a wide patent. The problem is, though, you need a lot of money to defend your patent. And about, you can talk to yeah, that. Yeah, and Scott, you know, on that, I was just <laughs> going to ask you just... Thanks, it's a great example, Cheryl. I'm really glad you... I guess, discuss that one with us because when I first heard that story, and it goes back to Phil's first point about getting advice, you just need to cover off that whole pestle, isn't it? You know, look at the politics, look at the environment, look at the social, define your problem in the context of the landscape and you can still really miss things, absolutely. Scott, just on that two points that Cheryl raised, um, one is... I guess, defending your IP, first of all, here in Australia, and then if you're planning to go global, how you do that up front. And the other one was, um, when is the point where it's worth, I mean, I, I, I highlighted in jest, but the amount of trouble that I ended up in because of cheese and festival, um, when is it at a point where it's actually worth defending? When do we actually go through that effort? So globally and, uh, and defending, when do we actually invest in protecting our IP? All right, so, so I guess the, the whole idea of, of obtaining a, a, a right, an intellectual property right, is that in most cases, the, the patents, the trademarks, the designs, gives you a monopoly. Um, and at the end of the day, it is up to the owner of those rights to defend their rights. And, and to go completely through a um, uh, court um, and using doing it properly, it, 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 it isn't cheap. Um, 22 years of of doing this um, in, in this career, I've I've come to the doorstep once, but most things settle well before before then. Without that patent, though, you have nothing to, to. Without that IP right, you have nothing to negotiate with. If someone does it, does end up copying. So, but there are other other purposes of of um, having an IP right in terms of licensing, um, in terms of selling it. Uh, selling actually the whole whole patent off to uh, the whole IP portfolio off to other people, um, but also more and more investors are asking, do you have an IP right? Do you have it? Do you have it protected? So enforcement is one of the opportunities you get. If I can call it an opportunity, if you do have an IP right, without it, you actually don't don't have that opportunity. But it needs to. Um, there's other reasons to have have IP, and and I think that's. Enforcement is expensive, but like I said, you know, seldom um, do a lot of these disputes end up in, in court. They, they settle beforehand. And as Cheryl said, by having that protection, there's also opportunity commercially to reach agreement with other people who may want to exactly. take your idea and, yep. and do something yep. with it. And, and globally, each each country has its own um, IP rights, the, the way that they administer them. So to get a patent, you have to go 
And, and it's a staged process. It's not all in the beginning. You can delay, you know, if you file a patent today, you could delay filing in, say, the US for, for two and a half years. Okay. So there, there, is, there is a process. And hopefully in that time you've, you've fully um, explored the market and you know where your markets are going to be and you've got investors on board. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then again, when you defend it, you have to go to the courts of that country. Okay, mm. so it does mm. get very, very complex and I guess we're talking about, you know, really taking that idea to a number of different steps. On process, Phil, in what you've seen, um, I guess there's certain moments where things fall over at, or grow. How, when you're looking at different businesses and supporting them, at what stages are those big questions of, do I stop, start, stop, start? Where do I actually go from here? Yeah, do you stop, go? That's a really good question, Denisha. <laughs> and, of course, there's no simple answer. Um, how, would I, how would I answer this question? It, look, it comes down to, you know, that size of the market, the size of the opportunity versus the – or the risk and reward. So the amount of money you need to keep pouring in mm. to extract the benefit, the, the financial return. And – you know, you stage gate things. So you're always, you know, when we're advising businesses, you're always making that judgment. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. You keep doing it. You keep going, oh, is this, is this, is this the next opportunity? Is this where are we going to land a big contract? Is, is taking, you know, like Cheryl's example, going offshore, you know. You know I mean, she, you would have had to gone through so many yes, no decisions <laughs> through that whole thing. Do we keep pouring money in? Do we keep... Do we keep going to Canberra? Do we really need five printers in this regime? Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, you, so you know, so for every business, that's going to be a different answer. But I suppose it's about the process. Mm. So the process would be you're constantly reading the market. You're constantly assessing how much money you need to to achieve goals, and then you're making that yes/no decision at each of those points, and that could be daily, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it's in the very, very early stages, you know, um, and as the business gets more stable and you start getting those wins and those decision times can stretch, you know, it might be, well, we've got 12 months of runway here. We can, we don't need to make another yes, no decision for another 12 months. Let's see if we can reach our strategic goals. So um, it's about planning that out. And, and again, having somebody walk with your journey. An advisory board's a great tip. Mm. Um, you know, you have people walk with you on that journey and, and it's obviously running through their heads, those advisors and people around you, um, you know, supporting you in making the right decision to keep going or, or no, now's the time to mm. look, it's never going to work. And the last thing you want to be is, you know, is the kind of the, the zombie type business. And we've seen lots of those in the commercialization world yes. where they're, they're, they're okay, they're generating revenue and whatever, they're just kind of ticking along and they're zombies and they're just never going to get to the next stage. But they're not bad, they're just never going to be great. And that's also a question of opportunity cost in some ways, isn't it? You know, I can probably earn a salary out of this business, but actually, if I stop throwing money down it, I may actually be better off just getting a job. And I think being willing to actually ask those questions of yourself, is, especially in those early days, is so, so important. Um, Helen, you talked about future-proofing and, and asking those questions right at the beginning and making sure they're in agreement. What sorts of questions do businesses need to be asking to make sure they're in their early agreements in their early stages in terms of future-proofing? Well... As I mentioned before, one of the key ones is how are you going to make decisions? Uh, depends on how many people are involved in the structure. 
it may depend on how much they've put in or, or what kind of effort they've put in, whether it's in money or whether it's in kind or the idea. Mm. Um, so get together and work out how will decisions be made and how will we solve a deadlock? If you've only got two of you and you disagree heartily, you, you need a, a method of resolving that and that's something you can write into your agreement. And how, how when life circumstances change, is the, the business going to change as well? You know, it could be this is the centre of your, your world now, but you've got no way of knowing what life's going to throw at you in a couple of years or in 10 years or when you're ready to retire. So look at how, assuming everything goes well and you're not one of those zombie companies, you know, once you're ready to leave, how are you going to exit? You know, if, you're, if your business partners want to keep going, you know, how are you going to transfer things over or if they want to leave? Mm. And if you're looking at people coming in, particularly if you're looking at third-party funding that's not, say, a charitable foundation or government that will have its own regulations, if it's a third party, they'll have their own terms on which they're willing to get involved. But you'd also want to maybe think about protecting yourself with a confidentiality agreement when you get down to showing them everything so they can do their due diligence, you know, have some protections in place. As you grow and you take on staff, you, in your um, employment contracts, you have those confidentiality clauses, have possibly you may need restraint of trade clauses. Look at how everything's going to be progress progressing, sorry. And also your clients, you know, if you're operating on the internet, and why wouldn't you be, um, you want to think about how you're going to protect their data, how you're going to reassure them you'll protect their data and who's going to own your client lists mm. and what can happen with those client lists. You know, these are, these are all things to consider and to discuss and to make sure you're all on the same page right at the beginning so that you reduce the chance of having disputes or, or needing to get the lawyers involved later on and going to courts worst case scenario you know you've, you've got everything in place you can work through you can resolve it yourself it's so and it, the mind kind of boggles when you're even just talking about you know as individuals even just how much our personal lives impact on our business decisions and you think you know having children divorce how many businesses have we seen where suddenly these great ideas actually just fall down because of external circumstances or and you know a, a partner falls ill for example or, or all of those sorts of things and I think you touched on non-disclosure and confidentiality and I think that's a fear a lot of people have in the early days of not sharing their idea in case someone steals it you know how you overcome that. Um, Sheldon, some of the examples that you've had around non-disclosure, how do you go to investors with this great idea when they've got the money potentially that could actually commercialise it quicker than you? How do you go about that process? We do use confidentiality agreements. Yeah. Very often an investor won't sign a confidentiality agreement because they may have seen something similar and then it's based on trust. If you're going to a serious, sophisticated investor, they're not going to steal your idea. Yeah. They're looking to invest in something that's going to make money for them. So you have to just go with the flow in some instances. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess for future-proofing all of those, there must be, again, like a business, a stop-start of do we have to cover off every possible scenario in the universe? And, Phil, I'd be really interested in your um, perspective on that of, you know, when businesses are either small to medium-sized enterprises, what are some of the core basics they need to have and then can potentially gradually build on in terms of some of this stuff? Oh, well, you know... Um 
all the all the statistics and all our experience shows it's about business planning. It's about mm. process and planning, and it you know it's the logistics of a business that people always seem to misunder misunderstand or, or discount um, because the idea and the innovation and the IP is the exciting stuff. Yeah. But you know what? Making sure that you've got photocopy paper in the photocopy. <laughs> yeah. you know, and that you realise your client list is actually an asset of your business. An asset yeah. of the business <laughs> and you keep that, you know, um, and uh, and that your employee contracts actually have an IP clause. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, the it, the Basic logistics and, and processes of business just we see just get discounted. It's part of this mythos around startup that all of that's you know kind of irrelevant and you know old mm. school and boring. Um, it's really not when you get caught <laughs> and the lawyers in the room. You know, it's actually almost well. It's I, I would argue as critical as the idea is the business structure the process, yes. your planning, how you on bring in people, how you exit people business, into the business, how you run the operations of the day-to-day, particularly now when we're in a skill shortage and, and I thought I'd, if I had a chance I'd raise the skill mm. shortage issue in Western Australia. Um, you know, the, the, the ability to find talent now has once again yeah. um, become a critical, you know, key risk in business. And so if your business is all freewheeling yeah. because we're a startup and we all wear T-shirts and we're freewheeling our IP um, and, you know, and you don't have the basics right in how your business is, is structured and your day-to-day for your staff, they'll just go somewhere else. You know, because because if they if you're making their life hard because you don't have the right IT system or you're not using the right um, platforms or, or you know whatever it is or you're trying to you know penny pinch on 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 um, you know the coffee in the tea room um, then they'll go somewhere else because right now um, you know the the scramble is for talent and if you've got talent then you can command your your price in the market. So, um, so for me, it's about the basics. It's always been about the basics of business foundations. It's in the name. Um, mm. You know, it's it's getting that right. And if you get that right, then your business will flourish. You know, you you have you stand more. Well, let's put it this way: you have much more of a chance of Absolutely. flourishing than if you're freewheeling it. Absolutely. We can add something I was going to add something to that, and that is very often in the startup world we see that there's an innovator with a great idea. Now, that innovator probably has domain expertise and they've solved a problem that they've encountered in their work life. They don't have all the skills necessary to commercialise it. And single founder companies very rarely succeed. They need to be open to taking on partners other directors and having a management team and board of advisors that can provide the gaps that they can't, can address those gaps. And there's got to be an element of trust because you've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find the prince. Mm. And you've got to really make sure you find the right people to engage with early on. It's such an important point and Phil, even as you were just talking then too, that we we forget businesses are making, we talked about the external issues with influencing business, but you can only take an idea so far without a team of people behind you that believe in that idea and generating belief in it and getting everyone on the same um, page is incredibly difficult. And I was thinking too, Cheryl, as you were talking then, that element of trust, again, is that human side of the business. And you have to be able to trust a few people along the way on the journey in order to make these ideas happen. And yeah. Cheryl's point was really 
important about about non-disclosure agreements and whatnot. And and you know, we we my advice people say, Phil, should I sign it? Should I not sign it? And I just say, look, you, you know, a good serious investor is not. They don't have time to mm. steal your idea. And guess what? They've probably seen ten of these anyway. You know, so that that, that uniqueness probably isn't there, which is in the mind of the owner. It's probably not there in reality. It's hard to undo that when they people watch you know YouTube videos on how mm. to start a business or how to commercialize an idea, <laughs> and and it tells them you've got to sign a non-disclosure agreement. You know, and yeah. they've seen it twenty times on YouTube. And so when you come along and say, actually, they're not really that important. The important part is finding the capital, the ideas, or the people that support their capital into your business and give you the connections and relationships. Um, that's where um, the non-disclosure agreements, you know, just just build those relationships, um, kiss a lot of frogs, build your idea, you know, build your team. Yeah. And I think that I, an old boss once said to me many years ago when I got up, I tend to get very upset when people, you know, do steal your ideas and copy things. You know, there's a personal affront of that was mine. But, you know, she once said to me, you've always got to stay ahead. And that is the key to business. If you are innovating and you're constantly thinking of new ways to do things, your idea will always be stronger than the idea of the person that's coming in behind you to copy it because you're already ahead of them because you've come up with it um, in the first place. It, it's a marathon race and, mm. and if you've got more, you know, um, fuel in your tank to get to the end goal, then, y y yes, you'll you'll outdo your competition. Absolutely. And, and, look, it's... If if you are ahead of the 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 game and you have a rep, you've built your reputation, that's where your brand comes into it as well. So it's it's good to have a a brand that stands out, um, so that as you build your reputation, the brand the brand reflects you, um, and people would gravitate towards that. I think it's a really good point. My partner and I often have a very long and heated discussion as whether it's better to be a uh, market leader or a fast follower. And I'd be really interested on the panel's thoughts around market leadership, which is obviously the really hard end of the journey, but you stay ahead, or you learn from everybody else and you quickly just bring it to market. What are your thoughts I on that, I think in either scenario, you've got to have a lot of marketing dollars behind you. Yes. And you've really got to know how you're going to take the market. You know, you can come up with the world's best toothbrush. There are hundreds of toothbrushes on the market. And yes, you can say everybody needs a toothbrush because everybody has teeth. Well, you're marketing against the likes of Colgate and Oral-B and very big brands that are readily available, established. How are you going to take those on, no matter how good your product is, unless you have sufficient funding behind you? So those are the things that we need to bear in mind. And to answer your question, I mean, we saw that happening. We see it happening with cars all the time. We saw it happening with mobile phone technologies. At one stage, Nokia was the clear leader. It didn't prevent other people from coming into the market. Mm. You know, we've seen Samsung take the lead, and then it's Apple taking the lead, and they flick flat between the two all the time. It doesn't stop the innovation. But innovation takes lots of money and lots of marketing dollars if you're going for consumer products and wide brand reach like that. It's so important. And that sophistication in the marketing in today's time. And I think, you know, Helen, you mentioned even, you know, a lot of businesses kind of start online as well. And, and making sure that that marketing is really absolutely on the money is so important. Are there any questions coming in from line? Did we have any in the room? Yes. Just make sure you've got the microphone and... Um, 
I sometimes forget to go to the room in the panel, so I'll just <laughs> do that. Thank you so much, Tanisha, and thank you for an absolutely fascinating discussion this morning. It's been so helpful. Um, I'm Karen Ineeling, a shameless plug for a moment. I um, am just founding the Fremantle Music Academy, which opens in two weeks' time. Uh, so my previous experience was as the director of a not-for-profit organisation, and there were some massive benefits there, including what you were saying um, Cheryl, about the advisory board. So we had parents of the children at the academy forming our board and they were invaluable. You know, a lawyer, marketing people, all of the things that one needs advice on were freely available there because of the goodness of their hearts and they were happy to offer that to a not-for-profit organisation. Of course, now I don't have that. You know, it's just me at this stage. Uh, so... I've learned a lot through uh, working in corporate in the subsequent years to working in not-for-profit, but I have been giving a lot of thought to how do I get all this advice that I was able to um, refer to previously without paying inordinate sums of money. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Feel like, or you feel it, Cheryl, yeah. Could be, could be one for me. Um, <laughs> um, well, there's certainly, in terms of you know business advice from the day the day to day, um, there, there are you know government services and and you know organisations like ours that do things and, and that sort of thing. But what you're talking about is more of that advisory board approach, and you know they can be formal or informal. So you you know, um, I business foundations are not for profit. I have a board, but I also have the informal one. You know, uh, and they've been my mentors and they've been my guides through, you know, 21 years of being CEO of Business Foundations. Um, and, and you know, um, and people like Cheryl and um, others through the CSC Association that, that we're both part of and things like that that, that um, uh, come with you on the journey. And they're people you can share and explore ideas with. So they're the informal, that's the informal board. A formal board, a different story, you know. Um, they're going to expect to be remunerated in some way, um, would More be my expectation. More than team biscuits, Phil? More than team biscuits. <laughs> team biscuits go a long way, though. And, and as, as, you know, we've got croissants tonight, uh, uh, this, this morning, viewers. You know, it's been fantastic. Um, you know, that's our, our payment for, for this morning. Um, so, you know, it, that goes a long way. Um, but at some point, they're probably going to want to be remunerated. And, and the question for you is, is that, is that value? Is, the, is it valuable to formalise, make it a regular meeting, get them in, pay them, you know, whatever it is that they need? Um, you know, that's, that's a, it's a tough decision. And, 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 then, and this is where it goes to the amount of money required to start a business. People then... Haven't, you haven't probably funded that. Do you have that money in the bank to invest? You know the value through a not-for-profit. A lot of people who've never worked in either corporates with a board or not-for-profits with a board don't understand the value of a board and so haven't budgeted, probably haven't budgeted for it. I, I, mean, I, very, I can count on one hand the number of businesses in 20 years that have ever had a budget for a board mm. as they start their private business. That's right. And without that, you have to rely on your networks. And I think, you know, that's where I find incredible, even within the chamber, that the amount of diversity of individuals that you can meet at networking functions, sharing ideas, going Join to forums your chamber. like this. Yeah, no, um, I think even when I was starting my businesses, even well before that, you know, Ray's, for example, you have fantastic 
talks regularly, different places in the city that you are encouraging people to come to to learn more. I think, you know, finding and tapping into those networks where a lot of the law firms do, you know, fantastic seminars if you're part of the institutes of different organisations as well. And I think there is a lot around in far as those networks. There's a lot around in the startup ecosystem at the moment. It was nothing about 10 years ago, but it's evolved greatly. Um, there are a couple that you should be aware of. There's Startup News WA. It's an online newspaper that comes out once a week that has a calendar of events that are happening in there. And it's worth going to those networking events. You'll find mentors there who are willing to help you. There are organisations particularly that help female founders and you've just got to find the right people. And it's really like a marriage. You, you're going to talk to 100 mentors and find the one that gels with you before you make any decisions. Mm. But certainly look at Startup News WA. There is Startup WA that's a community. There are various other things that happen from time to time, um, accelerator programs, etc. They're all in there and it's worth connecting. Isn't it? And I think it's also worth having your ears open, isn't it? Like I, I was, uh, Michelle and I were talking about um, a function we had recently where I was talking to one of our newer members and I was like, oh, you know, this particular company was a major leader in this field and had, they said, oh, no, I don't want to go down that path. Um, I don't like to, you know, share my ideas on social media because I think I'll keep them for myself. And, oh, no, I don't really want to do any marketing yet because I'm, I'm not really, you know, and I, I was thinking... I think we should be talking and listening to these questions because they're really valid. You can't run a business unless you're out there. You can't actually hide your idea away for yourself because then it isn't actually a business because how the hell are your customers going to know if you're not sharing it? And I think so many times in business... I've heard a question that someone's asked me. My instincts have said, Denise, you really should listen to that. But, of course, you don't in the excitement that Phil's talking about. You get so excited with the idea and what's happening. How many times that one question you heard is actually the thing that undoes you later on? It's just extraordinary. And you must see that a lot, Helen, in terms of, I guess, the agreements and those initial conversations with clients where you are asking them a lot of questions. Do you ever get that feeling of a few red flags that you wish you could kind of probe a little bit more at the time? To be honest, uh, with my background in disputes, the red flags have often gone off beforehand mm. it's yeah in the startup sphere though we've got some you know at, at free show and free show with sorry free show lawyers we've got some really good startup packs that that try to encompass everything that you need to think at that early stage so you can identify well we can help you identify those red flags for yourself um we also you know, I mean, no matter what your idea is at the early stages, no, you're right, you can't keep it to yourself. You've got to get out there. So you've got to take care of your branding and, you know, be registering trademarks and, and logos and being out there so people can see you and you can meet people and mm. you can form these networks and get yourself known. And one of the things that um, Stephanie Harrower, who couldn't unfortunately be here this morning, who is our intellectual property specialist, was talking about, uh, you may have the most fantastic business name idea and then you find out, yeah, that's good, I can register that in Australia. Oh, and it's available on Facebook. Oh, but it's not on Instagram and it's not on whatever platform the young kids are using that I'll probably find out about oh, next I'm year. I'm still so you devastated know, Instagram's <laughs> gone to video as of this week. I just mm. can't even begin to express how devastated I am. I downloaded Pinterest again is where I'm at. <laughs> but anyway, keep going, Helen. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, just, and you know, it's it's a constantly evolving landscape, mm-hmm. and and there is so much to think about. So you're right; you've got to keep your ears open to these questions. You know, people are going to think of things that, because the ideas person is so focused on their idea and their dream, they may be missing absolutely those red flags. So it's getting the advice early, and you're right; you've you've got to talk to other people with different specialities mm. that that aren't in your sphere. I think we're almost out of time, even though I could keep talking on this topic all day. On the questions, I'd love to leave each one of you on the panel with what is your one big question that you think should be asked on commercialising idea? If you were to meet someone in a room, they've got this great idea, what would be your first question to them, Cheryl, that they really need to think about their red flag? I think it needs to be solving a problem and they need to see how big their client base is. Is there a market for it? Without that, they've got nothing. That's a really good point. How about you, Scott? I echo exactly the same thing. It, it, but you can look at it a, a little bit further and say, well, the market, is the market actually ready for it? There might be a need, but through a law or through um, people's general thinking at that time, the market isn't isn't mm. quite there yet. You're, you're, you're ahead of your own time. Yeah. Or, as my ex-partner used to say, 10 years behind it, it's come full circle. <laughs> so we can often be there as well yeah. where, you know, you're, you're kind of going, wow, this is a great idea, but it's a small moment in time and, oh, look, it actually has been done a decade ago. Yeah, absolutely. Timing is oh, everything absolutely. in ideas, isn't it, really? And you can have the best idea in the world, but if your timing to enter it into the market isn't just at that moment of being right, I think yeah. timing. So solving the problem... Have we got a market and is the timing right for it? Such important Mm. questions. Phil. So I agree with those. So so (laughs) I was going to say both of those things. So let me come up with a third one, uh, which is money. So do you actually have enough money to start? And and I don't mean going to the market to find money, just in your own pocket. Have you actually got enough to get the basics right and to kick off properly, trademark, you know, patent um, and, um, and get your business structures right and then go off to source capital? So important. And also, have you got enough money to feed yourself and your family while you're going through this process? Because the last thing you want to do is run out of steam because you actually just don't have enough money to live on. Yeah, so important. Helen, your big question. You must have a million being in the position you are. Absolutely. A million questions. But I think the two basics is what have you got? What's the situation right now? And where do you want to be? Where do you want to go with this? Absolutely. And that is both professionally in terms of the business, but also personally where you want to go in your own life as well, I imagine. Because sometimes taking that big step globally, every time I hear Cheryl's stories, I'm like, how do you even begin to go, I'm brave enough to take this from here, this idea to moving into a global sphere. And I think the big question for me is, are you brave enough? Because any commercialisation of idea, the amount of personal energy, time, investment and bravery it takes to bring those ideas. And I think, you know, all of us on the panel have sort of have the ability now to kind of step back and be distant from it. But when you're in the heart of it, it's a huge, huge gamble, isn't it? And um, I really appreciate everything you've shared with us. And hopefully we've... uh, given a few people some bravery to uh, to jump in and continue because I think, you know, Fremantle itself is on the cusp of incredible change at the moment and it's going to take our innovation and our entrepreneurship and the ability to keep businesses like our marine and engineering businesses and our ideas businesses alive. That's going to be the future of Fremantle and I think how we take and commercialise ideas is such an important part of that. So thank you all very, very much. Um, 
I really appreciate, I think, the calibre of the knowledge we have in this room. And as I said, I think we could talk all day on this particular topic. Um, we will be running this live on the podcast. Obviously, we've got our Facebook audience listening to it now and we'll push it out through Chamber Weekly this week. But thank you all again very, very much. Um, we'll also highlight where each of you are so that um, if there are people looking for more formal and, and paid advice on this topic, um, that they can get in touch with each of you as well. So thank you all very much. And Chris from Cloud Meetings, thank you again for making us all sound truly amazing.